Uh-huh. My name is Willie, and I am an alcoholic. Whole bunch of eyeballs down there. I'm looking into them. It is a pretty sight. I got up at the Colorado State Convention years ago with this little book in my hand, and the chairs were down close like they are tonight, and one little lady turned to another and said, Oh, my Lord, she's going to read her talk. And she didn't know it, but in this little book, I have a piece of paper, and it says, Your name is Willie, and you're an alcoholic. so glad to be invited to this, and I'm looking forward to this entire weekend. I don't know really how it is here in Tennessee, but down in, in Texas, and particularly spring is 16 miles north of Houston, in case you ever pass by, look real quick. But I go into Houston and I'm around in that big city area, and I don't—I really don't know how it is here in Nashville and in Tennessee as a whole, but down in Texas and in the Houston area in particular, being an alcoholic started getting to be a status symbol. I mean, they started working to keep out the social climbers. Have you noticed that, you know, you pick up a newspaper, you turn on the television, the Sunday supplement in the paper, magazine, and they're talking about us. And that's great, but I read these things and I listen to some of these talk shows, and I don't know who they're talking about. Because one of the things that they'll invariably say is, an alcoholic is. Now, have you ever seen anything that an alcoholic is? The only thing consistent about an alcoholic is his inconsistency. You know, you let an old drunk walk by your house every morning, every morning. It's exactly 8 o'clock. And one morning you're feeling real good, you know, and you decide to, to go out and speak to him. Well, he won't come. There's so many people that are studying us. And that's, I think it's great that the word alcoholic is no longer sort of a dirty word, but when I read their descriptions, I just wonder who they are talking about. They, they want to define us, and they want to say that we're all, you know, alike. We can, they can fit us into these little holes in an egg carton. And God bless them, we just keep flopping out on them. They think they have us all figured out. They'll, you know, analyze a couple of us, and they'll say, now, the reason why you drank was, for instance, you were potty trained too soon. <laughs> your mother just didn't do this, and she didn't do that right, and your papa didn't do this, and they didn't do that right. And they think they have it all fine, that we all had these traumatic childhoods. And then along came one like me. And one like a lot of you sitting out there, we flop out on them, and we worry the stew out of them, and they try again on another tactic. And I like to think about that for the simple reason that there are a lot of us 
that indeed we did have tragic childhoods. We had all sorts of things that happened to us that were out of our control, and we didn't grow up with happy kids. And then there's a whole bunch of us that just grew up with not a lot of trauma in our lives. Now, in Spring, Texas, a lot of trauma just didn't go on there. There wasn't enough people in Spring to have a trauma. We were all of German descent. We had one church in town, and that was the German Lutheran Church. And we had a, a beautiful picnic once a year. And that was the social calendar in Spring, Texas. So we'd have barn raising and a couple of fiddlers in the background, and, and we, you know, would dance up a storm at the, when we were having a, a barn raising or something. But there wasn't any great things that went on in spring. I just grew up there. My mother didn't hate my dad. My dad didn't hate my mother. My brother and I fought, but we didn't hate each other. I just grew up. I heard a man say one one time something that stuck with me. In so many instances, the personality of the person brings on the alcoholism. But in just as many cases, the alcoholism brings on the personality. And I thought about that statement a long time, and I do believe that it's true. The thousands and thousands and thousands of alcoholics that I have met throughout the years. As a beautiful Texan, I'll have to tell you my sobriety date, because we do that in Texas. We do that to tell you that there is a track record behind Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're it. I haven't have found it absolutely necessary to have a drink of alcohol since June the 19th, 1957. And, you know, thank you for giving Alcoholics Anonymous a hand, because it deserves it. You know, out of all those years, you know that I didn't live in one room all shut up with just a bunch of alcoholics. Life is what I've been doing in all those years. Life. And that's the hard part. You know, we don't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to only get sober. We come here to get changed. And that's what's been happening all these years. I hope I always stay green in this program because green things grow. I hope there's always something for me to learn. I'll learn something here this weekend. I know I will. But back to the situation of trying to figure us out and all these people that are studying us, we have to look at these things and see exactly what they're saying and see if what they're saying fits us. That doesn't make us go into a unique bracket. It's just that there's a whole bunch of us. We're described in the big book. They're like passengers on a great liner. And those of you who have been on cruises know that, you know, the further up you go, well, it's different types, all good people. But just some don't want to fork over the money to, you know, to be on the first deck. But, so that's not contrary, and I hope I not, do not say anything up here that's contrary to what we have in our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and our 12 and 12. If I do, 
Just don't pay a bit of mind to it. But it tells us there that we're not all alike in our background, in our emotional makeup, financially, racially, educational, socially. And when I came through this program, I tried to identify with that type of thing, with the, the drinking stories. When I came in, and I actually came in in 1953, and those of you who haven't been a booming success since the first AA meeting that you ever walked into and said, I'm home and that's it, and oh, you have a lot of company, because I bounced in and out of this thing like a yo-yo. There were men back in those days, very few women did I meet, and those men got sick to death of me. Number one, they didn't know what on earth to do with me. I was in my twenties, I was healthy, I was strong, and I had been more or less forced to go to AA, and I didn't believe a word they were saying, and I listened to their stories. You know, we share two things in this room tonight. We share pain, and we share a loss of control of our lives. And when you said that, you said it all, because we're all different. I go into places as I travel around, and I know you do too, Tom. They want to, different ones will want to take and show us their facilities that they have for treatment of alcoholics. And, and I go ahead and go like you do. And uh, I, I look, and I'm not down in the treatment centers in any way at all, but I'll go in and visit their facilities. Went into one recently, and it had uh, a, a set of questions for the poor old alcoholic to answer when he, you know, was checked in. That set of questions consisted of six typewritten pages of questions, and some of the questions were this long. I mean three-part, four-part harmony there. And I could just envision, as they were showing me these, a poor old adult-fatted drunk, you know, not even able to write his own name real good, and he's going to answer all these questions. And I thought, dear God, I'm glad I came in when I did. <laughs> we had a fellow down in, in Tyler, Texas, and I know a lot of you that have been around a good while, and a lot of you newer people have heard Wino Joe's tapes. Wino was a beautiful man. And he'll never be gone because he'll always be with those of us who knew him. And he, old Wino made up his own set of questions. And I'd like to share a couple of them with you. He gave me permission to. Number one, have you ever been sunburned in the roof of your mouth? Number two, have you ever been arrested while in jail? <laughs> Number three, have you ever been run over by your own car while driving it? <laughs> now, see, y'all understood those questions, didn't you? 
For the sake of the fact that I wanted to, to talk about a little bit tonight, what alcoholic uh, alcohol did to me as a human being, what it did to me, and what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me. I grew up there in that little old town, graduated from high school, went off to college, and sure, my teenage years were full of all sorts of problems. Zipsies on the end of my nose when I, you know, I didn't want it there for, we were having, you know, something at school, a little tiny program of some kind, and there it would be, shining crystal clear. All of the trauma and the drama of teenage years. Taking some small something and squalling for three days about it. I mean, life was serious. And sure, I had all of that happen to me as I was growing up. No big deal. It's not too different from the teenagers nowadays. They have the same type of problems, and they're magnified a little bit. But I have to stop, and, and when I'm honest with myself, and when I finally got honest with the people that were trying to help me, then I realized that those were just ordinary and from experience in the classroom. That these were just ordinary teenage problems. Well, went, to, went off to college, got my degree and came home, and I had started out, you know, having these hallucinations of grandeur because I got up near Fort Worth, Texas. And I mean Fort Worth and Dallas up in there. That was big city upside of Houston at that time. And I got up there and I heard these girls, you know, talking about things that they had done that we hadn't done at the church picnic. <laughs> and Lord, they sounded like fun. And I wanted to miss some of that. But I graduate and I go on home and I tell my good German papa that I want to go to New York and be a model. Well, papa didn't know exactly what a model was. But he did know a little something that he'd heard about New York, and he said, no, that's not what you're going to do. We have a war going on, your brother's all fighting the war, and you're going to do what you can for the war effort. Well, shucks, I had a lot of things in mind I could do for the war effort. <laughs> but that's not what Papa meant either. He said, you're going to go into Houston and get you a job teaching school. And I thought, oh, dear Lord. I never saw a school teacher that had looked like she had one minute's fun. <laughs> but this is 1944, and teenagers didn't argue with Papa in 1944, and I said, yes, sir. Went into town and got me a job teaching school. I see the people that are studying us, if they can't find this traumatic childhood, then they go on and, and they have the quotes there that tell us that alcoholics are people that have never really been fulfilled. They've never have gotten to do what they really wanted to do in life. And see, that's true of some of us. But I hadn't been in that classroom six weeks till I knew that this is the only way in the world I ever wanted to make a living. And when I retired from the public schools, six or seven years ago, 
I had finished 37 years with America's teenagers. A little lady, a little lady down uh, real close to the front one time whispered to her partner, said, my God, that's why she drank. I loved those kids. I loved teaching. I loved everything about it. I retired from the public schools and then went into college teaching, and I just, due to circumstances in my life, have gotten out. I figured they were going to have to carry me out of the classroom feet first because I loved it. So see, the problem wasn't there. I had been teaching there in Houston four years, and I met and married the man that I don't know, and neither of you ask why, but I'm still married to that dude. Next month, we're going to celebrate our 45th wedding anniversary. And that, in this day and age, that, that's something. That's really something. This is one of God's blessings that I was able to hold on to my man. So many of us gals get here. And he's gone. Because, you know, women, God bless them, they'll stay married to an alcoholic for 20 years and he'll die if they go out and find him another one. <laughs> but a man's not going to stay around very long with a drunken woman. I can't help it. I, I direct a lot of my comments to the woman. There is nothing more humiliating and degrading and shameful than being a woman drunk. That does not say that you men and I don't share that pain of being an alcoholic. But the shame and humiliation is greater for us. We're the wives and we're the mothers. And the connotation that it brings up that, oh, you're alcoholic, a whole moving picture show goes on. We have a little bit more trouble getting rid of that feeling of being less than. You fellows can have a camaraderie that we can't have from the very beginning. Y'all can pretty well, you know, sit and shoot the bull with each other and swap stories. And some of them are real good stories. You see, us gals can't, we can't do that as quickly as you can. We hold back with each other. Number one, women don't really trust other women. That starts way down in the in the primary grades. We get in our little cliques, and if you're my best friend, then you can't be anybody else's best friend. And we don't quite trust each other. Now, I told you I didn't want you to tell that, and you told it anyhow. It's just our nature. And dear God bless this program, because it has given me a love of other women and a trust. But you know, back then, that's not the way it was. And I resented the fact that y'all could talk about, you know, getting all boiled up and getting, you know, jump on the table and jerk off your shirts and, and put a lampshade on your head and dance and everybody applauded and you were the show star of the night. And you let us women even try to tell you something like that. We can't get it out. We can't get it out. So we hold these things in. And that's why I want to just direct a few of my remarks to the women. A lot of women sitting out there tonight, if you knew, that's 
It's ordinary, hon. You're not going to open up right away. But, but look forward to it. Because you will. You will. If you've been sitting around sober, just sober for five or six years, and you're still hurting, you might look at that and see if that's one of the stumbling blocks. But I married, met and married this fellow. And now, I know that there's some of you out there, bound to be some old hard noses that are thinking, well, now, she's been talking for a while here and she hadn't said one word about alcohol. I wonder if she ever did any drinking. Or if she stayed in one room and they squirted it to her through the keyhole. <laughs> of course I had had homebrew back there in that German settlement. Everybody made homebrew. Our minister didn't get up on Sunday morning and teach the evils of drink because he made good homebrew. <laughs> and of course I had had some at the church picnic and at various small occasions that we had had. No problems. None whatsoever. I know now that the allergy was there inside my body. It was there. I just hadn't poured any alcohol into my system on a consistent basis. I know that now because Dr. Silkworth explains that to us. That first of all, I had that allergy and it was sitting there. A lot of people come to Texas and they don't South Texas and they don't, uh, you know, are not allergic to a whole bunch of stuff. Let them stay there about two months. They'll be allergic to everything. And that allergy's always been there, but they weren't exposed to these things in other parts of the country. So I know that the allergy was there. But when I met and married this fellow, he was a United States Air Force officer, a pilot, and he took this little old barefoot Texas girl from this stage kind of life that she had had into the swinging scene. Because, you know, service people do drink a little bit. <laughs> he was stationed up at Scottsfield, Illinois. And he introduced me to the first time to all these pretty little drinks. Got in these pretty glasses with the long stems and, and you know, that home brew we drank out of tin cans, anything that was handy. And here are all these pretty little drinks with all that stuff in there, the olives and the orange peels and all of that. And man, I liked everything that man handed me. I liked going to the officer's club and, and sitting there in, in that smoky officer's club with a little old band piano player playing over in the corner. I liked all the gaiety. I liked everything that went with the drinking. And it's sort of like the kids nowadays. They're exposed to it everywhere. Everywhere. And when the allergy is there, the trouble comes pretty quick. Because allergies grow. It, it, I don't know why this puzzled me so much in the very beginning. Because I'm, a, I'm allergic to penicillin. Now, no matter what kind of mindset I get, no matter what kind of childhood I had, no matter what kind of education I have, it doesn't matter. I am allergic within my body to penicillin. I found that out the hard way. The first time I ever took it, the allergy wasn't full-blown. They didn't know very much about it, and I had a little old rash on the back of my hand. The next time I took it, I broke out all over, and it still went away in a couple of days, and it cleared up the infection. 
And like I say, they didn't know too much about penicillin, but the third time I took it, I quit breathing. And since that time, I have never let a doctor give me any penicillin. And see, not because of of background or problems that I was having in my life or, or anything else. I don't let anybody give me any penicillin because I have an allergy of the body. We were stationed there at Scott Field, and I loved the life. I loved the everything that went with it. I liked the cocktail parties and all the dancing and everything. And we had been married for two years, and they picked my man up, and, and he had already fought one war, World War II, and they picked him up and sent him to Korea. I went back to Spring, Texas, got a job teaching school in the school I had graduated out of, and waited for my man to come home. Now, another one of the things that you'll hear, especially those of you that are new on the program, you'll hear that, and, and one of the outstanding questions have always been, did you ever drink alone? Well, during the 18 months, my man was fighting over in Korea. You better believe I drank alone. I did everything alone. Because my husband is of the disposition that if he is in Korea and I'm in Spring, Texas, I'd better be doing everything alone. So, yes, I did my drinking alone. And a lot of it. Because the allergy was growing. When he came back, we picked up right where we had left off and started our life together. And very subtly, Willie began to change. Have you noticed how many times in the big book the word subtly is used? You know, if we just, all of us, if we just took our first drink of whiskey and, and or beer or anything, and our lives were in a complete mess in three days, then that would be different. But most of us, the signs are so subtle. And the, this is why we talk about going to meetings, going to meetings and sharing with each other, because we learn about some of these signs. And we can able to flick or flash back and say yes. But at the time I came in, I couldn't say yes. Because what alcohol had done to me in that subtle way, number one is it turned me into a liar. Not all at once. I had never really had anything to lie about. I mean, I might have tell you that you look nice in a dress if I knew it was new, and I really didn't like it on you. It didn't do you justice, but I'd tell you I liked it. Those kind of little lies, but lying about big things. But first I started lying to myself and rationalizing. I was a periodic. I didn't stay drunk all the time. I get to uh, get too much, and the aftermath began to pile up, and the lies began to pile up. Because see, if you put excuses and rationalizing and lying all in a paper sack together and dump them out, they're going to all fall out together too, because they're all the same thing. If I start making an excuse to you about something, pretty soon I'm going to tell you a lie if you let me turn loose on that. Say, for instance, if we're supposed to meet for lunch and I'm late, if I start in with any kind of an excuse why I'm late, other than the ball-faced truth, then I'm going to end up lying to you. 
and see what that does to me, no matter how long I've been sober. If I start doing this again, I'm going to start paying for it. Because if I tell you, you know, well, I'm, I'm real sorry I'm late, but I got stuck on the freeway behind this 18-wheeler. He had turned over, and he was all over the freeway, and I thought I could take a shortcut and get here. And on and on and on I'm going to make, trying to excuse myself for the fact that I didn't leave home in time to get there. And that's something we learn in this program. That's the kind of honesty that I have to continue to practice if I want to grow in this program. I can't rationalize my behavior in any way. I can't cut you down or, or say anything unkind to you in passing, whether you're a clerk in the grocery store or somebody at the drugstore or anybody that I come in contact in my little orbit of living and rationalize that you had it coming. And you deserved what I told you. If I start doing that again, I'm in big trouble. See, my life was unmanageable all those years ago. And if I let it get unmanageable again, I'm going to be miserable. And I refuse to be miserable. I love the saying, misery is optional. Grief and sorrow, no, uh-uh. But misery is optional. We can stay in it just as long as we want to. I ran across a little something not too long ago and jotted it down because it uh, appealed to me along that line. If I can shuffle it around here. Where'd it go? I don't know where it went. Here we go. It says happiness is uh, like trouble. The more you nurse it, the more it grows. And I like that. Because if I let myself slip up in being miserable too long, then that misery is going to grow and grow into something else. And that's what I, I don't want to happen. Making excuses for everything. I heard a story one time, and they've written a book about it now. But about the old the fellow that the fireman jerked out of this burning building and shook him around a little while and said, George, we have told you over and over not to smoke in bed. But hell, the bed was on fire when I got in it. <laughs> and didn't we come up with excuses as quick as that? How about the morning after a blackout? We walked around with, you know, answers to questions we hadn't even been asked yet. <laughs> our whole lives become a lie. Not necessarily about our drinking and not always about our drinking. It becomes a way of life with us, and we have those excuses for any kind of unacceptable behavior towards our fellow human beings, and we'll come up with them real quick. And see, like if I told that girl that story about being late on the freeway, then with that wreck on the freeway, then I worry all the way home that she's going to watch the six o'clock news, and she's not going to see one word about, you know traffic being held up for two and a half hours because there was a wreck on the freeway. So then I had some guilt setting in. And this is where the trouble starts. I did all of those things that drunks do. 
the sharing of, of drunk stories with you won't make a great deal of difference. I'd rather share the well stories because I got drunk just like everybody else. Made a fool out of myself just like everybody else. Hurt the people that I love just like everybody else. We all do crazy things. The drunks out there tonight and tomorrow night, Saturday night, they're going to all do crazy things. And they'll be very similar to the things that we did when we were drinking. Because a drunk gets out of hand, gets out of control. And this is not the thing that was eating my insides up. It was the way my life wasn't going well when I was stone cold sober. And this is what we experience when we come into AA too, a lot of us, is that our life doesn't immediately just get better. Everything doesn't straighten out. Because you know, life has a habit of just going on. And every once in a while it points right at you and says, gotcha. Because that's what life's all about. You know, wouldn't it be <laughs> ridiculous if all of our days were good? You know, if you never had a bad day, how would you know when you're having a good day? And of course they are. But if I don't exaggerate it in my own mind, then I'm okay. I'm okay. But I gave those men, men just absolute hell. Everything they said and tried to teach me, I disagreed with. See, I was dying of, of uniqueness. We lose a lot of alcoholics like that. I'm different, fellas. I have two degrees hanging on the wall. I came from a good background. I'm a good person. And y'all are talking about losing, you know, jobs and into that. I remember one of them later on, a fella told me, said, you know, Willie, you remind me of this old, old, old story about this lion that came across this bull and he killed the bull and he ate it and oh, he felt so good and everything. Instead of going on off and taking a nap, no, he stood up on a rock and roared just as loud as he could. And a hunter came along and shot him. And he said, Willie, the moral to that story is, if you're full of bull, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> and that hurt my feelings. Because we all know how sensitive we are. You know, alcoholism is really a sort of a perception problem. A normal person you know, gets a flat tire on the road, and they call AAA, you know. An alcoholic gets a flat tire, and we call crisis hotline. We can build all of these things that are going to happen to you stone cold sober, and we'll build them up to a three-act play. And I mustn't let myself do that. Bill tells us we're actors. You know, he calls us actors many times in that book. We, we set up a, a scene and we act it out. And I have to remember that play acting has its place, but not in my program of sobriety. I was lacking in one element there. I could not. I was saying I was an alcoholic. I was stating that fact. I was saying that I accepted it, 
but I didn't. I couldn't, I couldn't make myself believe that my life was in a complete mess. Because in between that spree drinking, things were okay. Except I was changing so much, but I couldn't see it. My man could see it, but he didn't know what in the world was wrong. But I had to have a blind acceptance to this thing. I could not only admit that I was alcoholic, but I had to look at that acceptance. And I heard a story one time that, that falls in right along this, that when the big 18-wheelers did first come in, they some jerk decided he would, you know, it's not only good enough to drive those things, but they need a psychological test to go along with it to handle these big rigs. So they set up a, a program, and they had these fellows come in, take their driver's test, and then they would take them in a little room and give them a, you know, a psychological profile type thing. They asked this old boy, I said, now what would you do if you were coming down a steep, steep hill, and it had been raining, and it was sled, and you get down to the bottom of the hill, and you put on your brakes, and you got no brakes, what would you do? And he said, well, I'd wake up Leroy. And oh, you know, they, they, they latch on to something like that. But he wanted him to, to explain it in his own words. So he said, why would you wake up Leroy? And he said, well, Leroy, he ain't never seen a great big wreck. That's the kind of acceptance that we have to, to have to have. We're in a mess. And here are a bunch of people that are saying, I can help you out. And I kept pushing them away and pushing them away. I finally managed a struggling year after four years of, of sobriety. I almost hate to call it sobriety because I was free of alcohol. And God reached into my life and we had been married 10 years by then and he reached in and gave me something that even the doctors had said I couldn't have. Out in Seattle, Washington, I gave birth to a beautiful baby boy and he has been the joy of my life. Took that little old boy and we were transferred down to Montgomery, Alabama and God gave me my first woman. And gals, when you when you're looking for a sponsor, you keep looking till you find. They don't have to have eons and years of sobriety. My beautiful Rose there in Montgomery, Alabama, had two years, just barely. But she took my hand and walked with me. We learned the program together. She, with a little bit of knowledge that she had, and we struggled along and we made it. But having this woman help me in my life was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had. This is the main reason that we advise you girls. Many, many girls as I go around will tell me, well, Willie, I, I can't find a woman sponsor. I can talk to the men a lot easier. Well, I always want to just blurt out, uh-huh. Yeah, I found it easier to talk to the men too, because see, 
I could boondoggle them all I wanted to. And us gals are good at that. We can tell them anything and make them believe it. Remember, it wasn't Eve's idea. Wasn't, wasn't. <laughs> Poor Adam, he was staying away from that apple. But it wasn't her idea to let it alone, and she got him to take him a bite. But the thing of it is, when you really find a woman that will help guide you in this program, you won't be able to lie to her. Because she's going to call you a bluff every time. And that's what Rose did. See, I got there and I was free of alcohol. I had this beautiful baby. And I was one of these that I had admitted I was alcoholic and thought I had accepted it. But I kept right on with my belly aching. And you know what I was belly aching about? Because when I came into this program, I tried desperately to get my husband to partake of the activities. And he said, uh-uh. He told me, he said, you got a problem and you better solve it. I see that wasn't really as unkind as it sounds. It was the truth. It was my problem. Over and over in the big book. This is an inside job we're doing. And this man was a two-fisted drinker then, and he still is. And he said, I am not going to get the alcohol out of this house. If you don't have sense enough to not drink it and let these people teach you how, because he had read the big book. He had read it. He said, they got, they got the answers, really. Because by then, everything was going downhill. Me, the marriage, everything. And I was sober, remember. But I was angry. Y'all talked about, you know, being joyous and free. Bull on that. I was sober. Sober, and that was enough. Aren't you people ever satisfied? I hadn't had a drink. And I would moan and bellyache about, here, you know, you men just don't understand. You come in and, and your little wife gets her program and she goes into the Al-Anon and gets her little program going and, and she, you know, gets so glad that you're sober and the paycheck's coming in again and, and she gets all the alcohol out of the house, welcomes your AA friends in, goes to meeting with you, goes to things like this with you. And he's sitting home drinking beer while I'm at meeting. But you, your wife, you, she cooperates with you, and she gets her program so well, she turns into this beautiful butterfly, and you have everything going for you, and I'm having to go home, and my guy is drinking. Poor Willie. And y'all kept telling me, Willie, his drinking doesn't have anything to do with you. It's not bothering him, it's just bothering you. And you tried to explain to me that that's called envy. And sure enough, one of the seven deadly sins, you know, and here I was calling it everything else. I was righteous. And that poor man would come home and off that flight line, driving that airplane all day long, and he would come in and he'd shake up that pitcher of martinis and get out that glass, because that's the way normal drinkers do. They get out the right glasses and they do all this stuff. And he'd shake up, and I could chew the stem off the glass. And I could just see that tiredness roll off of him. 
And what I know now, it was pure envy, that's all. Because that's the way he drank. He was just a plain old ordinary drinker. His drinking pattern hadn't changed since I married that sucker. Isn't that disgusting? I mean, he drank... He always did the same thing. He would come in and he would say, I'm going to have a couple of drinks and then we'll eat about 7.30. Okay. At 7.30, here he comes. And if his glass still had drinks in it, beer in it, whatever he had, he would come over and pour it down my sink. <laughs> and I'd watch it go all the way down. I cried a lot at my house. I always, you know, wondered how anybody could do that. And I hated him for it. But the old seething kind that us gals do so good, you know. But when he would be sitting there just as relaxed and everything, I would, you know, go in and take out my little Mary Martyr flag and I would start in on this man. He was peaceably having a drink. And I would start in on him. How can you do this to me? Now, number one, isn't that a dumb question? I had put this man through pure, unmitigated hell because no man is proud of a drunken woman. No man. Not one worth his salt. And I'd say, how can you do this to me? I said, here, I've been home with this baby all day long because my song would go on. Once I got started, I was on a roll. I've been home with the baby all day. I, I don't know anything about babies, and I get tired, and I get nervous. And one day he looked at me, and he gave me a beautiful piece of advice. He said, hell, just be nervous. Because I would tell him, you know, these people in AA, because that's who you were, these people. They tell me not to take a drink and not to take a pill, and, and I, I do get so nervous, and that's when he said, he'll just be nervous. Now, he lived to regret this, because <laughs> I got to the point where I would get up in the mornings and announce, this is my nervous day, and I'm going to be nervous all day long. And I'm going to make everybody around me a little nervous, too. It's fun. Try it sometime. It keeps everybody around you on their toes. And see, us gals live through a lot of nervousness in our particular makeup. And... There was a period in my sobriety and in our marriage and in my life where I got so nervous I could thread a sewing machine and it was running. <laughs> but see, I found out I didn't have to poke anything inside of myself except knowledge about Willie and what had happened to her. And it, it was fun after I got started. Being a pilot, he's, he's a very staid, uh, conscientious, laid-back person, and nothing ever ruffles him too much. But there are some... My, my, my husband doesn't like fried eggs. Never has. 
So I thought, you know, in order to, to get rid of some of this venom, Rose had, had said to me one time, Willie, when are you going to get your sense of humor back? Dear God, a person without a sense of humor is so colorless. Just colorless. They have about as much personality, you know, somewhere between a brick and a house plant. Get your sense of humor back. And things begin to fall in place. Honey, if you're having trouble finding a little of this joyous and free, stick around. It'll come. And it comes in strange ways. My husband didn't like side eggs. So one Sunday morning I had an inspiration. Now see, even these normal drinkers, they don't feel real good the next morning after a big party at the club. They don't feel all that good. One morning I fried his eggs. Just barely. And when I put them down, I shook them a little bit. And you know, honey, when I walked away from that table, I had a smile on my face. And I thought, Lord, this is much better than the belly aching. My son was growing up to be pretty big, and he came in one day and he said, Mama, I sure would like to have a pet like Ricky has. And I said, well, good, honey. Uh... I figured, you know, he wanted, it was time for him to have a little dog or a cat, whatever he wanted there. And I said, what does Ricky have? I meant a dog or a cat. And he said, Mama, Ricky has a snake. And it's so much fun to play with. And I, see, I'm a country girl, as I told you, but I married a city fellow. And he's scared sickness of snakes, and I'm not. Because my brothers, in order to get me to go on and leave them alone when we were growing up, they put them down my bloomers, and I had to learn how to, you know, handle that. <laughs> so I'm not the least bit afraid of snakes. And I said, well, honey, yeah, that, that's, a, that's fine. And the old mind was going, and I said, but let's wait till Saturday to go green. We'll have more time. And I could hardly wait because we had a big blowout going on at the club that night on Saturday night. So Saturday afternoon, we go to the pet store and we got us a long black king snake named him Jack on the way home. And I told my son, I said, you know, Hundas don't bother Dad to with him tonight. The babysitter's coming and everything. I said, let's just go ahead and take him to your room. We'll show it to him in the morning. helped that dude get drunk that night. <laughs> Whenever his glass would go down, I about, honey, I'll go get you a drink. I poured him into bed. I could hardly sleep waiting for morning to get there. Daybreak came, and I opened that bedroom door and put old Jack in there and closed the door. Now, you haven't ever seen a legal husband depart a legal bedroom quite as rapidly. There are a lot of you young people sitting there that think you invented streaking. You didn't. You didn't. Now, this is not the sort of the Al-Anon type torturing. I was torturing him for my sake. But see, the way it was turning out, he was so relieved for me to get off of his back and leave him alone about his drinking because it wasn't bothering him, only me. 
He ate good meals when he, he always remembered it the next day. Because see, he just passed out at night. He didn't black out. World of difference between passing out and blacking out, isn't there? They don't keep just right on going when they're flat on their back. They don't bother police when they're flat on their back. Any of that good stuff. And it wasn't a way of paying him back. That's not the idea. It was the way of really beginning to to not take life so seriously. We're never going to get out alive anyhow. So why take it so seriously? I take my program very, very seriously. I just don't take Willie very seriously anymore. Rose told me one time when I was deep, deep in depression. Isn't that the most depressing word you've ever heard? I'm not talking about real clinical manic depressiveness. I'm talking about the time that if we have two bad days in a row, we're depressed. But a way to get myself out of that was to learn to laugh at me again and just see how ridiculous life is as a whole. And he really began to enjoy it. He would look forward. He said it was sort of like living with Lucy. <laughs> My son got up there and he was a good boy and I, I, he wanted one of these little mini bikes when they first came in and I bought him the little 50 and he took real good care of it, was careful on it and he came on up to the 100 and 150 went on up and when he got to that 360, I had been riding on the back with him and enjoying it and I asked him as we pulled into the driveway one afternoon, I asked him, I said, Jeff, would you mind if, if I bought me a motorcycle? Oh, Mama, I think that's great. So I went out and bought a motorcycle. And I've been riding a motorcycle ever since. And I, I know, I know that some of my neighbors sit there and watch me take off sometimes. Think that crazy old broad is too old to be riding a motorcycle. Who says? You know, who says? See, I know I'm getting older. But I refuse to get old. And there is a lot of difference. I don't have to get old. Chronologically, I'm going to get older. But Alcoholics Anonymous, this beautiful program, has taught me through working it each and every day that life can be joyous. Sure, there'll be problems. Sure, there will be. And the thing about the motorcycle was is that my husband hates motorcycles because then... And he would stand there at the door, you know, and look at us take off and just shake his head. Y'all are crazy. But it was fun. And it was that sharing with my son that gave us something that in so many ways we still are sharing. He has given me my first grandbaby. And it'll be my only one. But I'm enjoying the tar out of it. Because my son and I have always been so close. And here comes another little boy to me to share with. I'm going to see to it that he likes snakes too. <laughs> see what I was doing. I was adding the third A to my program. It's not. It wasn't good enough to just admit that I was an alcoholic or to accept the fact that I was an alcoholic. I had to learn to approve of being an alcoholic. And that's what this program gives us. 
We've got approval. It teaches us how to be better every day of our lives that we possibly can. Of course we're still human beings and we're going to get hateful and ugly every once in a while. That's being a human being. We're going to have fits of anger. When somebody cuts me off on the freeway, wow. Sure, I can have that little tiny teeny fit. But then my program tells me how to come out of that. Anger and envy and, and jealousy and all those things can come and visit me because I'm a human being. Dr. Silkworth wrote us another letter in the grapevine in 1947. And he told us that to never forget that no matter how long we stayed sober, we are still human beings. We're going to react to things the way everybody in that human bracket reacts. And it's all right for these things to come in to my life, because they are going to come in as long as I live on this planet. I just don't want to let them unpack their suitcases and live there. They're free to come and go real quick. Because, you know, it, it, it's a beautiful thing when you can say, Okay, I'm an alcoholic. No big deal. Look at the adventure I have in front of me. These people are willing to help me. And you have continued to help me throughout all these years. You know, it's, it's amazing. I thought I was so put upon and, and so singled out. Why did I have to be an alcoholic? Why couldn't it happen to a Baptist preacher's wife? She didn't want to drink anyhow. But I like it. I like the taste of it. I like the camaraderie. I like everything. I like, I like drinking people. I mean, somebody tells me, I never cared for drinking. I think, well, I'll strike that one off. I mean, I, I, and that's ugly for me to say that, I guess, in, in some people's minds. But I really like drinkers. I don't know. They just, they, I, I seem to have a lot more in common with them. And that may be because I was one myself. But I think that, that we have to, instead of being felt so put upon, I finally got to the point where I realized that this was God working in my life. That even though I stumbled for those four years, God slipped everything into my pocket because he knew that the day was going to come when old Willie would start pulling them out and using them in my everyday affairs, practicing the principles over and over and over again, like it tells us to do. Not just to be honest when I wanted to, not just to be straightforward when I wanted to be, but to try to do that and try to do everything I can for any other human being in my orbit, be I'm an alcoholic or not, to go out of my way to help my fellow man to do all the things that it tells us to do, to practice those principles in all my affairs. I'm going through and have been for the last five or six years the roughest time I've ever had to go through in my sobriety in my life, in my entire life. You see, I no longer feel put upon. I no longer can feel that God singled me out to, to punish me in some way. Sure, I had those feelings in the beginning when I realized 
what was happening in my life. But AA had taught me, really, don't do anything, don't think anything, don't feel anything just yet. Let God show you what he wants to do with you. Let God show you his plan. We're truly blessed people. You know we have the only terminal illness, the only one that is immediately arrestable. Immediately. We have the only fatal illness that we come out of bravier and happier and more content than when we went into it. Isn't that something? When I could learn to think of it in those terms instead of, why did this happen to me? Then I began to, to really get this program and to put it into my life and to learn to the real meaning of that joyous and free, the fantastic people that I've met. Wouldn't trade these people for anything in the world. Wouldn't trade you for anything in the world. I appreciate so much you asking me. I'd like to leave you with something that appeared in the grapevine around 1957. It sort of wraps up what AA is. They're looking for their definition when they're studying us. But I think this says it in such a good way. It was written by a Canadian and sent in to the grapevine. It says AA is a spirit. It cannot be touched, nor can it be completely understood. It's as wide as the world and yet small enough to fit snugly into the hearts and the minds of man. It has brought light where only darkness dwelt. It's given hope to the hopeless and help to those who yearned in despair. It's nourished forgiveness in those who knew no pity. It's given strength to the weak and humility to the strong. It spurred to higher goals those who strove for nothing. It's taught patience to the hurried and action to the lazy. To use its given vision and to the aged promise. To the lonely companions and to the restless rest. To the sick it's been a doctor and to the dying it has revived the desire to live. It has no judgment against the unteachable nor has it praise for those who learn. To the outcast it's been a family, and to the childish it has given children. To the ignorant wisdom and to the wise tolerance. It has given to all men that which is most precious. It's given a love of truth and a love of life, with enough left over to share with each other. Thank you so much for having me here. <laughs>